Welcome to episode 45 of Battle Rhythm, the Canadian podcast that tells you what you need to know on security and defense. I'm Stephanie Von Latke, and my co-host, Steve Sademan, will join me shortly. In today's episode, we talk about Lieutenant Colonel Taylor's public letter about sexual misconduct in the Canadian Armed Forces, the heated exchange between Biden and Putin, and Canada gaining allies against China's hostage diplomacy. Our feature interview is with Professor Besma Momani from the University of Waterloo, the director of the Defense and Security Foresight Group Alliance Collaborative Network. At the very end of the episode, we have Steve's R&R segment. Thank you for listening. So, Stephanie, how are you doing this week? Doing great, Steve. It's the springtime. It's sunny outside. I really can't complain. How are things with you? Well, I did break out my bike this weekend and put away my my uh, snowshoes, and I biked around, and it was really delightful weather, which was good for the, the spirits. And we had a very successful capstone yesterday. We had our capstone seminar, which will be put online on our YouTube channel uh, once it's processed later this week or early next. But it's always nice to have one of those events come off and come off really well. We had seven speakers from uh, nominated by the partners of the CDSN from the best presentations of 2020. And they were indeed the best presentations ranging from AI and in, in how it affects targeting to uh, a new technology that be worn by soldiers that does digital triage to conversations about gender in the military, a bunch of different papers, a bunch of different, different presentations, really interesting. And I'm really glad it went off well. I'm glad it went one too, and and I think it's a it's good to have an eclectic group of presenters. Uh, you mentioned that gender was a topic that was discussed, and I noticed that when we organize workshops specifically on gender, we tend to have a very peculiar gender balance in the room. So I think by mixing it up in terms of topic, good that you're getting a variety of better of interest to security and defense, and not having these siloed conversations on different themes and notes. Well, it was interesting that of the seven papers. I guess three, three and a half ended up focusing on personnel issues, which of course near to and dear to your heart since you lead the, the personnel theme of the CDSN along with Irina Goldenberg. So there was just by accident, that was sort of a convergence of some of the papers. Speaking of personnel issues, the big news of the past week has been the ongoing story about whether Minister of Defense Saijan will be sticking around for a while longer. And it looked more in doubt after Lieutenant Colonel Taylor came out and announced that she wanted to be released from the Canadian Armed Forces because she was upset with how senior leadership was not really handling the sexual misconduct challenge within the Canadian Armed Forces. What, how did you react to the, her, her statements and her decision? Well, what I noticed first and foremost is that Lieutenant Colonel Taylor being the, the deputy commander of the 36th Brigade Group and a very much admired infantry officer with combat experience in Afghanistan. She also worked for JTF2. And it's it's the fact that she's a very accomplished, trailblazing woman in the combat arms that's causing many within the military to pay more attention to her message, criticizing calf culture. I don't know if this is fair or not, but that's the reality. And so the things that she highlights in her letter, I think emphasize 
certain aspects of the debate that we've been having over the past few weeks following the allegations against uh, Vance and uh, the, the former CDS uh, McDonald, or I suppose the CDS who's stepped aside while these allegations are being investigated would be a more accurate statement. But her letter says that she was, as you mentioned, not surprised by this most recent sexual misconduct scandal, that she has observed insidious and inappropriate use of power for sexual exploitation throughout her career. And she says that some senior leaders are unwilling or maybe unable to recognize that their behavior is harmful and that those in authority who should know better lack the courage and tools to confront the systemic issue. So she emphasizes both the abuses of power question Mm -hmm. uh, that uh, we've discussed on on this podcast uh, previously, and also refers to this damaging cycle of silence, which also addresses why it is so hard for people who have witnessed or suffered sexual misconduct to speak up in this military environment. Uh, She talks about the risks of professional and social ostracization, the fear of being alienated by your peers if you do speak up, and that it's easier not to report than to face this kind of workplace and social dynamic. And I think what's important to recognize here is that, yeah, it's think of it as a workplace, but it's also most of your interpersonal relationships when you're in the military are with other military members. So the, the ramifications of, of this fear of social ostracization are, I think, a lot uh, deeper and, and more complex than, than we might think, especially when we can we compare military culture to other professional cultures. The other thing that struck me from this public letter and from the interview that she did uh, with Mercedes Stevenson is that there's a recognition at some point that it's no longer possible to change from within. And she was rising through the ranks. And I don't know if she was thinking about releasing or not, but certainly the events of the past weeks and months have prompted her to make that decision now in this time, perhaps because there was no hope that she could uh, influence things from within anymore. And that's that's what, what I found a whole a little bit disheartening from the from the mm-hmm. whole thing. Uh, we'll hear more from her. Actually, we we won't probably because it won't be public, but she's been invited to speak at the Army Council meeting in April. Mm-hmm. So she'll have an opportunity to confront army leaders about the ongoing problem of uh, sexual misconduct and how to tackle it. But I think the the letter really underscored the need for CAF leaders to face this head on and to deal with those within the military who don't see the problem or who have felt unfairly targeted by by op honor. But I, I hear that these issues were also discussed at the CDA Institute. Uh, was this last week or two weeks ago? I know you attended and General Eyre was there, uh, Lieutenant Colonel Sarah here. So you had an opportunity also to hear from other people in uniform to talk about this particular issue, right? Yes, uh, at the CIA conference a couple of weeks ago, there was a panel on this that Mercedes Stevenson uh, moderated. And two of the speakers were women in the forces, uh, an Admiral Patterson and Lieutenant Colonel here. And it was striking that their panel was right before General Ayers' speech, because you could sort of hear the two of them, the two women sort of carefully talking about how they haven't, you know, they haven't had so many problems, but they know other people have had problems. And so they, they reached down and talked to their people about, you know, having conversations about these issues. And then General Ayers comes in and, and basically says very bluntly that they failed. 
and that they need, you know, that we need to take this seriously. And, and he's not going to be trying to protect his job since his job doesn't really exist for much longer. You know, he's an acting CDS. And so he, he was pretty blunt about it. And it was exactly what you wanted to hear. But the question then becomes what actually is done? And the thing is, we've heard a lot from leadership over the past five, six years that they, that they care about these issues. Uh, but then what you see in practice is you see Lieutenant, I think it's Lieutenant Commander Trotter, who spoke uh, uh, to the media as well about his experience of reporting what has happened to people that he knows and then him facing threats, not just the, the women who got that he was trying to, to help, but also he himself got threats and angry uh, phone calls from D, people purporting to be in D&D and CAF. So I think it's put up or shut up time. Uh, that I think Lieutenant Taylor's move really is a challenge because, as you said, it sends send signals to everybody that maybe you can't, that, that there's not a lot of hope within the force. And so to change that, you've got to really do something costly. And on her part, she did something costly to demonstrate her frustration or anger. She re- she's act, uh, trying to get out of the military, and that means that she has to find a new job. That was a very costly signal to send. And it hit hard. We've heard a lot of people in the defense community really be shocked by this because she was somebody who could have been a future CDS, that, that she was a, someone who had a, a tremendous background. She checked all the right boxes for the kinds of things you want from somebody who's going to rise far in the military, and yet she's dropping out. And so that's not a strong signal. So the, the question is, what kind of things can the acting CDS do, what kind of things can the Minister of Defense do? What kind of things can a prime minister do to send a strong signal that they take this seriously? I wrote an op-ed that came out a week ago in the Globe and Mail that had one specific recommendation, which was that the Minister of Defense, Saijan, should resign or be pushed out by the prime minister because he's failed to handle the situation adequately. That would be a strong signal that the government takes it seriously. And the more they dither on that, the more they dilute that message that they take this seriously. The more that they are seen as, as just doing it, you know, stretching this thing out means that they don't take it seriously. They take other things seriously. In the latest news yesterday, we're taping this on Tuesday, on Monday, the defense committee met with Harper's chief of staff to ask how they dealt with this issue. And in, in their reporting of it, Harper's former chief of staff said, well, we asked about it, about these issues. And since the woman in question was not in Vance's chain of command, and because he ultimately married her, we we moved on with this. But but the person who was testifying, um, Novak, indicated that they were not told about this other woman who was Kelly Brennan. And if they had known that, they might have acted differently. So this story is going to continue, and the liberals are going to dither about this. And I just, it's not going to send a signal that Lieutenant Colonel Taylor is wrong. I think she's the signals that they're sending are going to reinforce the message that she sent, which is that. The government doesn't really care about this that much. They're just trying to shoot the messenger and, and not really listen to the message. It'll, it may be up to acting chief of defense staff air to send a strong signal through some action, but we don't know what that is yet. Do you have any ideas of what they could do? Well, there, there are some things that they can do in the short term that would be quite impactful. So there's been a lot of talk about reporting processes and investigation procedures. So those... I think can be tackled immediately and help to remove the barriers that currently exist that really impact victim and survivors' willingness and ability to come forward with their accusations or incidents. The other thing seems to me leadership selection and vetting procedures. I mean, that is an issue that can be tackled right away. And then when all this talk about military culture needing 
to change that that's longer term work, of course, uh, but it starts with with a plan. I know there's an independent study that will be conducted to review op honor. So going back to the recommendations definitely makes sense to see which recommendations were implemented rather superficially, which recommendations were implemented more forcefully, and then to correct course based on the experiences of the last uh, five, six years. So the one thing that the one mistake I don't want us to make and all this is that, you know, we know the problem and we have many answers already because this is not the first time that the military attempts to, to uh, tackle this issue. I think that Right now, we have a, b a better clarity on what needs to be done in terms of next steps to remove the barriers that, that victims and survivors currently have to speaking out. And also, you know, when, when you approach this, uh, you really need to look at the entire military career and look at it in stages and, and, and then be a bit more deliberate about the changes you implement from recruitment to training to leadership development, because the other thing that's very apparent in Lieutenant Colonel Taylor's letter is this, you know, command climate that cultivated this cycle of silence, and that needs to be tackled. And that's all about the leaders within the Canadian Armed Forces. So maybe a, a long-winded answer. But before we close on this topic, I, I don't want to forget to, to acknowledge one more thing is that the New York Times picked up the story and reported on this public letter from Lieutenant Colonel Taylor and what hit hard there is that Leah West, who is a defense expert in her own right, a national security expert at NIPSIA, uh, who was going to talk to, to the journalist about sexual misconduct in the Canadian Armed Forces, actually disclosed a sexual assault incident of her own. And felt I was very brave and I admire her tremendously for uh, making her story public. And obviously, as, as a close colleague of ours, that hit home quite hard on that Friday when the story broke up. Indeed, Leah her office is just down the hall from mine, and she's uh, been at Nipsey for only a couple of years, but I, I, I too, was really impressed with her and her, her bravery in, in talking about this, that, you know, I knew that she had a military background, I, but I didn't know that this was part of her military background. And I'm sorry that it is part of her background, but I'm, I'm really glad that she spoke out. I think the more that we know that this, this is a real problem with real people attached to it, that it has, it makes an impact. I, I know it made an impact on us. And I, I think seeing that story and seeing her talk about it was, was really important. It's just so angry and so frustrating that we see a lot of the same things going happening again and again. And, and hopefully this time will be different, but the reactions thus far suggest this won't be any different. We'll see this again in five or 10 years. There'll be another Deschamps report, there'll be another this. I'm hoping that this particular crisis will energize things sufficiently, but it requires some leadership at the top to do that. And also it requires leadership at all levels. I was impressed with how Lieutenant Colonel here talked about how she handled the news that had been broken out while she was leading a group of soldiers in Ukraine. So the one thing that gives me some hope is that there are a lot of really good people in the CAF at the junior levels and the medium levels that have better takes on this and better reactions and better instincts. But it's it's just so very frustrating and angering that people continue to suffer when they're all they want to do is serve their country. I agree. And I also think it's a it's an opportunity for us sitting on the outside of the organization, experts and academics researching this stuff, whether it's military personnel issues or defense policy more broadly, it's really important that in, in this moment we not hide in our ivory tower. I think there's an opportunity for us to, to contribute 
to translate our research findings into recommendations at a time where there's an openness to draw from that external expertise. So I suppose kudos to everyone who's engaged in the, in the last few weeks. I'm, I'm thinking of the CDSN postdoc, but really some tremendous scholars and experts from across the country. And that's only the beginning of the work that, that needs to be done in the next weeks, months, and years. So I really hope that that engagement will be sustained and that that engagement can be constructive between the expert community and the Canadian Armed Forces. Well put. You have finite time today, so let's move on to our next topic, which is, will Biden and Putin have a debate? So far, uh, and I don't know if you've heard uh, anything different, but it doesn't seem like Biden is biting. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, it seems that uh, we there was a, a fiery exchange of, of words. The sound bites, which are getting a lot of play, are about the Biden interview, which aired on, on ABC, where he says he does not think Putin has a soul and that he thought Putin was a killer when propped in uh, by a question by the journalist. And sure, the bilateral relationship is in, is in pretty bad shape, but what the new Biden administration will actually do to put additional pressure on Russia is unclear. More sanctions, more economic pressure. It's not as forceful a stance so far when you compare this to, let's say, the UK. And the UK has taken its latest defense and foreign policy review to really pinpoint Russia as a threat. And it's described now as the most acute threat to the UK's security. So definitely adopting a more adversarial tone than what we've seen in NATO documents and in the foreign policy documents and statements of other Western European states. So it'll be interesting to see if the Biden administration adopts similar rhetoric vis-a-vis uh, Russia, or if this is just sort of a flash in the pan diplomatic exchange that sours relations in the short term, but maybe that leads to cooperation in another area. I know that Afghanistan is a file that you know, certainly the US and, and Russia can't avoid collaborating on, and, and there are others, uh, including arms control. But what did you think of this whole exchange? Is it more grandstanding, or is there more to it than that? Well, the, the funny thing is, is that I think the interim security guidance that the Biden team put out made it very clear that Russia is essentially a troll in international relations, that they're they're annoying, but that the real threat is China. And I think that might have offended the Russians more than anything else to be put in sort of a dismissive yeah, we have to think about you guys, but you're not really a threat because you're a joke. And I think that's the attitude. Not, not so much that Russia is really a joke, but that it's it's not a priority, right? That Russia is not a problem 20 years down the road. It's a problem right now. And it's a problem. It does all these asymmetric things, but it's not really a threat to the United States in the same way that China is. It's not really a threat to American interests or the world, except for through things like election interference, through cyber attacks. But in terms of a long-term strategic threat, it's it's not really a problem. And I think that dismissiveness probably hurts the Russians more than referring to Putin as a killer, because we know that Putin has uh, sent people to, be, uh, to assassinate folks in, well, the UK, amongst other places. So, and I don't, I would think that that Putin would see that as a badge of honor, not a, not a criticism. So I do think that Putin start is, is frustrated because he had his friend in the White House for four years, and now he doesn't. And so it's going to make things a little more difficult for him in the world, because the United States is not going to kowtow to Putin at meetings, and the United States is going to work with its allies rather than try to distance itself from allies. So, you know, we don't know what's going to happen in four years when in the next American election, but for these next four years, Putin's going to have to deal with an administration that is not going to be very friendly. And that's part of the gamble. If you bet all on one side of, of an election, then when you lose, you lose in a big way. This is sort of the Netanyahu realization as well. Netanyahu was betting entirely on the Republicans, and so is Putin. 
And as a result, they're they're losers of the November election just as much as Donald Trump was. So I think the whole debate thing is really strange to find Fox News and other folks in the right wing of the American political system rooting for Putin against Biden. I think it's illustrating to one and all what we knew all along, which is that this toxic partisanship on the part of the Republicans and the Fox News is anti-American. It's putting truly putting party above country in ways that are more naked and more obnoxious than perhaps in the past. No, Biden's not going to debate Putin. There's no reason to do so. Debate over what? Leadership of the free world? Putin is not a leader of the free world. Leadership of the world? That would be a debate between Biden and the Chinese leadership. Putin is in a country that has a weak economy, declining population, and a vaccine that I certainly wouldn't trust. So I think this is a flash in the pan created mostly by the media. I think this this particular version of the story will go away pretty quickly, and it'll just be more about how does NATO work to you know contain the Russians while focusing on the bigger threats out there. And so there was this uh, Biden-Putin spat, and then a few days later, the U.S. held discussions with China and Anchorage, Alaska, and that did not go well <laughs> either. Well, the interesting thing is, is for Canada is the United States is now, along with its allies, standing with Canada over hostage diplomacy that we've seen in the past several days, the supposed trials of the two Michaels take place. And outside those trials, you had not just the American diplomat there, but you had, I think, around 20 yesterday. So Canada is definitely getting much more support than it had previously in the struggle with uh, China over them taking Canadians hostage. So I, I do think we're getting more support. I don't know if it's going to change Chinese behavior, but I think we feel a little bit less alone. How do you feel about these things? Well, I, I wanted to talk a little bit about the, the term of hostage diplomacy because we're seeing this a lot in the news right now. And there was a really interesting thread on, on Twitter by Danny Gilbert, and she co-authored a paper with Dr. Gail Rivard-Pichet. And they wrote a paper on hostage diplomacy, which they define, by the way, as, as the taking of hostages under the guise of law for diplomatic purposes, and really identify this as a preferred Chinese foreign policy tactic. So yes, we're talking a lot about Canada in this context, which makes sense given the situation of the two Michaels. But this practice, which looks like lawful detention, but then prisoners are only released as the result of diplomatic concessions, is a tactic that is used you know, more broadly. It's not just this case of the, the two Michaels being used as bargaining chips. There are other allies who have suffered from this. And China is not the only perpetrator. So this, this concept is, is getting a bit more traction, sadly, I, I would argue. And uh, the, the solidarity of, of diplomats showing up at the trials last week can hopefully lead to more unity and momentum to curtail this kind of coercive behavior in diplomacy. So, so that's the first piece. And I definitely think, by the way, that we should have uh, Danny Gilbert and Gael Rivard-Pichet tell us more about uh, the paper that they wrote on hostage diplomacy. So hopefully we can have them on the podcast soon. Yeah, it would be great to have them on because obviously this is not just a Canadian thing. The Chinese have done this elsewhere. I'm still struck by a conversation I had two years ago in my office where I had two Chinese diplomats who were trying to talk to me about how to have better relationship with Can Canadians. And I said, well, first release the hostages. They're like, well, besides that. And I was like, there's no besides that. And they just seem to think, you know, we take hostages all the time. Why should you be so fussed? It's like, well, that, that's a problem that you guys could have. And it's a problem that they're having now. So I don't know how this is going to get resolved. I think the, the fact that the Chinese haven't issued verdicts in the two cases is an effort by themselves to create room to do something. But I don't know what they'll do with that room. Well, we've covered a bunch of issues, Stephanie. And I know that, that this is a very busy time. So 
Be well in all the different things that you're doing to help not only the CDSN, but Queens, the RSA network and all the other things you do. It is a busy time of year, uh, Steve, but I'm very proud of, of the work that we're doing together at the CDSN. We just had our annual co-directors meeting today and there is a tremendous energy in that virtual room. So hopefully the time that we spend in virtual meetings is, is counted and that we can look beyond that and uh, see everyone again and, and continue some of that work at the CDSN and, and other respective networks. I also want to say I really enjoyed your, your interview with uh, Best Mama Mommy. It, it was great to have her on. And of course, that's coming up next. Best Mama Mommy is a professor at University of Waterloo. She leads the Defense and Security Foresight Group, which is one of the MINDS networks. She is one of the leading voices on all things IR, but particularly Middle East uh, from a Canadian perspective. And so we had a really good conversation about what her network is up to and the sort of the state of play of things in the Middle East across the board. I, I've known her for several years, so it was a, a pretty easy conversation to have. And and she really has a lot of keen insights, particularly 10 years after Arab Spring. So we talk a little bit about that as well. That's great. Uh, again, great interview. And it's nice talking to you, Stephen. Have a great week. You too, Stephanie. pleased today to have Besma Mulani uh, speak to Battle Rhythm. Can you introduce yourself to us, Besma? Yeah, thanks. Uh, Besma Mulani, I'm a professor in the political science department at the University of Waterloo. This year, I'm assistant vice president of research and international in the office of research, and I'm a senior fellow at CG. That's a lot of hats to wear, and one of the heaviest hats you're probably wearing these days is the director of the Defense and Foresight Group, which is the first network that mines, that is the Department of National Defense's Mobilizing Insights in Defense and Security program had funded. So can you tell us what uh, DSF is up to these days? Yeah. Um, Well, DSF, like everybody, is kind of scrambling, trying to figure out how to sort of get back to business as usual with this pandemic. I mean, the goal of our group, and it's really um, led by a number of regional kind of experts. So we cover most of the the globe regionally, and our goal is to provide foresight analysis of those regions. And uh, the team was was trained, uh, I would say, in Washington professionally by a foresight analyst. And our goal was really to provide very kind of insightful, Canadian-relevant, policy-relevant foresight analysis of a number of hotspots across the globe. The challenge we're facing, of course, like everybody, is, you know, those things are really well done in person, but don't really work so great online. So we've kind of pushed a lot of our activities, I would say, in hopes that things will kind of open up for us. But uh, it's a real challenge. And I think we're uh, increasingly, like many organizations and groups, finding that brainstorming is sort of the hardest thing to do online. You know, it's one thing to be a passive listener to a webinar or a lecture, but it's real Zoom fatigue to be an active participant, uh, and in particular, foresight analysis to do it really properly. You need a day and a half. So it's a bit of a challenge, but we're, we're soldiering through. We've got a number of webinars um, that we're hosting in an effort to sort of bring awareness to a lot of the issues. So we um, hosted a couple on the Middle East, on Belarus, um, on the Asia Pacific, we have a very active Asia Pacific team. So really trying to do as much as we can to sort of keep us going, uh, but we're really hoping that in-person activity will resume soon so that we could do a proper foresight analysis in our work. 
Have you seen the pandemic uh, changing or affecting sort of what your various teams are foreseeing that, that it's changing regional relations or, or domestic politics in other countries and in ways that are, I don't know if you want to say systematic, but something that, that more than one or two countries, you know, is, is it having an impact in, in particular ways that will make the world more or less safe, more or less dangerous, particular regions becoming more unstable th thanks to the pandemic? Yeah, I mean, I don't want to speak for, for colleagues who lead the various groups, but um, I mean, I would say that uh, certainly the pandemic has brought both for some regions uh, a quieting of things, you know, there's sort of no effort to fight. So some of the hot conflicts are sort of subdued. But at the same time, I think the pandemic, uh, in my humble view, is and this is my own maybe personal analysis of things, is that the pandemic is going to frankly make things worse in the future. Um, both because we see, you know, the rise of populist nationalist governments globally. Um, I think we see a multilateral global environment that's no longer functioning as the way it once was. You can blame that on Trump or on everybody else, but it is what it is. I think we are seeing a, you know, from, from the trade perspective, a decoupling, you know, some call it deglobalization. Certainly supply chains are disrupted. So I think there is something to be said about the fraying uh, or even just the no longer, you know, firm belief in unfettered globalization is going to, I think, you know, heighten conflict and, and insecurity. And also, I mean, the other thing too is that the, the fiscal crunch is mm -hmm. enormous. The debt overhang on countries today is quite profound and it's only going to get worse. Economic recovery, certainly, you know, projections are that it's going to be positive next year, but most of that's coming out of China and not necessarily everywhere else in the world. So we have anemic growth coming up. Joblessness is going to be on the rise. And, and again, we know that that's all kind of the perfect storm for the kinds of leaders that will, you know, blame things on politics and regional issues rather than kind of addressing the domestic front more carefully. So I think we are going to, we need to get ready for, I think, a bumpy road in, um, in global politics, in my humble view. And I guess one of the questions now is, and sort of what you hinted at, is that the President Biden is not going to be able to magically wave his wand and, and return to 2016. Yeah, totally agree. And I think that people are also, you know, and I, I'd say that in the Biden administration in the short days that it's been around has tried to obviously come back into the multilateral fold, you know, from rejoining WHO to, you know, the Paris Climate Agreement and so forth. But you know, this is this is an introverted presidency, in my humble view. I mean, you're certainly uh, more of a watcher of, of U.S. politics, but I think you know the the catastrophe that had that is the United States today, with not just polarization, but uh, inequities, you know, economic inequities, racial ones, and certainly the economic joblessness, anemic growth. It's all, I think, going to make this president be more focused and more inward and introverted. So don't expect a lot, I think, from the Biden administration globally. I think it's not a return to, as you said, uh, 2015, 2016. One of the hidden dynamics of this is that because the Senate is so divided, Kamala Harris is not going to be able to do much international diplomacy because she's going to have to be available in D.C. to break ties, which reminds me that some people are saying with a minority government in Canada, it was going to limit the ability for Trudeau and Freeland and other folks to travel around the world because they also have to be ready to come back and, and vote in case there's a no confidence vote. So we're seeing some parallels here about division in both countries, making it harder for politicians to spend time on their international profile. I would say one possibility for the Biden administration might be that 
with a lot of things getting, well, we'll see if things get frozen in Congress a lot, there's always a temptation for a president to make progress to focus on international affairs where they have a lot more latitude. So Biden, if he gets frustrated with Republicans, may may go out in the international scene and, and, and get the, the easier wins, or at least the uh, seeming to make more progress in those places. Yeah, that's a good point. Although, I mean, I, I'm also of the, of the view that, you know, Biden is very much a traditionalist, and he is facing a Congress and his own party that is increasingly more leftward leaning. And I think that in many ways, the Biden administration or Biden himself might actually really appreciate not having to deal with those thorny international issues. Because what the, the left, the progressive movement in the party wants, uh, you know, of the future sort of U.S. position in the globe, I think is completely in contrast to what Biden sees as, you know, the normal place for America. So I think that actually... In my view, other than things like climate and, you know, environment, you know, these kinds of uh, more, you know, domestic type issues that kind of transcend globally, I don't see the Biden administration really working hard to make a mark internationally. But I, I totally take your point that it might be a way to, yeah, when you don't make a lot of wins domestically and it's really hard to get things through, yeah, why not sort of join some international treaties or make some big pronouncements globally to get your wins? Well, one of the biggest changes between Biden and Trump is is their views towards the Middle East, where you see. Yeah. So, what do you think about Biden's stance towards uh towards Saudi Arabia? Yeah, well, I think that's definitely been a big change, right? Um, and I think again, not to disparage Biden, but I do think this is more the pressure of his progressive Democratic camp. Um, they have been extremely critical of the war against Yemen um, and the Saudi involvement in it. Um, you know, you know, it's gone so well. Yeah, right. I mean, you look at Chris Murphy and some other people, you know, um, and certainly even the, the squad, so to speak, you know, they've been very critical about American complicity in, in the war in Yemen. And I think, you know, Biden um, wants to make a break. And, and this is where he kind of tries to show democratic, you know, credentials to his base or to the progressive base. And, you know, getting out of the, the war in Yemen is a win. Now, I have to point out that the Initial announcements that I saw, certainly what Biden said, sounded like a real break, right? And then slowly, slowly, you hear some announcements that, oh, you know, it's not like the Americans aren't completely leaving the Saudis. You know, we're still going to be involved somewhat. So, I mean, the proof will be in the pudding, right, in terms of what exactly are we going to see. Um, we heard things like they'll stop the refueling. They'll stop giving logistical support to the Saudis, which I don't know if that's a good thing because... The, the challenge has been the Saudis are just terrible at targeting and, and part of the atrocities have been because they're so bad. And in some way, the Americans were supposed to be in the in the war room to at least kind of help the, the, the Saudis to, to ensure that they don't hit civilian targets. So I don't know. I mean, that maybe that's not a good thing for the Yemeni people. Um, the war needs to end. It, it's been a disaster, a humanitarian catastrophe for, catastrophe for the Yemeni people. But it's not just the war. There's an economic crisis there really people are struggling because this country is so food import dependent and the currency obviously is, is has depreciated beyond belief um, that people's salaries um, are just not enough to buy the basic consumer goods that one needs. Uh, there's no shortage of food in the country. I and mean, this is something that is really important to point out. The hunger is very much man-made. It's not that there's no food there. Uh, the food is coming into the ports now, potato, Port was a, a stumbling block at one point, but now the food's coming in. The challenge is people can't afford it because, you know, most public salaries, people who work for the public sector, literally their, their income does not come close to being able to afford the, the mm. food that's in the market. So 
you know, it needs a huge um, sovereign debt restructuring. And the challenge, of course, is that there's zero appetite globally today, this huge debt overhang that every country is going to face post-COVID uh, to come up with these kinds of, of arrangements. But I sure do hope that this war ends because the Yemeni people have really suffered. Speaking of suffering people in the Middle East, one thing we haven't really heard of much lately is Lebanon. I saw a story in the past couple of days that indicated that they found another deposit of incredibly explosive materials uh, that have been built up over the decades. Since the explosion, you know, we had a burst of, of attention paid towards Lebanon, but we haven't heard much about it since then. How is Lebanon getting along these days, given that they had their port decimated by, by the explosion? Not good. Uh, you know, the economic crisis, and this is again what's so difficult about Lebanon and that port was really just the, you know, the straw that broke the camel's back because the economic situation was just disastrous. People couldn't pull out money from their bank accounts, devaluation of the currency. The country is bankrupt. There's no other way of putting it. And all the oligarchs, uh, you know, the kleptocrats, if you want to call it, don't even want to agree on even estimating uh, how much money the country owes, like believe it or not. And that's been a real challenge for international creditors, the IMF, you know, something called the Paris Grouping, which was come up with some kind of package for, for Lebanon, not quite the Paris Club. It's a, it's a more of a private group, but they won't even get together to come up with a, with a decent assessment on how much uh, debt is actually owed externally. So, you know, that hasn't gotten any better, of course, and then you add COVID to the mix. And as you pointed out, there continue to be amazing exposés by Lebanese journalists and even some international journalists to show the actual complicity of so many, you know, officials and, and stakeholders who basically had a vested interest in keeping those explosive materials at the port. I mean, it's absolutely insane. Uh, a lot of a lot of finger pointing toward Hezbollah, which has you know become for so many Lebanese you know a real thorn in, in the side. It's you know a a political party slash terrorist organization, depending on your political stripe, and it's clearly you know have some sort of role complicity in, in those in those in those ammunitions and those um, explosive material at the port, and so. It's created a lot of anger. There's been a, a, an assassination of, of a prominent critic of Hezbollah just in the past few days, and people are frustrated. So it's a country that you know I'm, I'm watching, um, it's, and it's a real shame because I think people who know Lebanon know that it's really just a beautiful country and, and great people. Um, and really, I still remember visiting it myself in, in 1990, you know, coming out of the mm -hmm. Civil War and just seeing it sort of try to come back alive in its first days. Uh, was really difficult. I mean, it's, it's, it's totally different. I was there last year and it's uh, far more repaired, but you know, the memory of that 15 year civil brutal war still very real and vivid uh, to my generation and those that are older. So I really don't want to see it sort of creep back into that failed state mode. Well, you said something there that reminds me uh, that of, of the importance of dates, importance of anniversaries. And this year is the anniversary, 10th year anniversary of Arab Spring. Mm -hmm. And as we've seen in other places, dates and anniversaries can serve as focal points for protests, just like elections do, just like Navalny returning back to Russia has turned into a focal point. And so I'm curious as to whether you're, you know, combining your, your defense and, and security foresight group with your expertise on the Middle East, do you see 2021 being particularly uh, noisy or uh, full of protests as, as people get back on the streets to protest the fact that the promise of 2020, uh, 2011 really didn't play out very well except for the people of Tunisia? Uh, yeah. Do you expect to see more protests this year uh, and, and potentially more repression and violence as a result? 
Yeah, unfortunately. And I mean, I think that for those who are not watching, you know, you might think that 2011 happened and there's nothing been in between, but almost in every country there have been protests. You know, this has become a regular feature. At the same time, unfortunately, a lot of the governments have become more digitally authoritarian. And so they're able to monitor people in ways that they didn't before. We're seeing new ways of protest, which I find fascinating. It's in poetry, it's in art, it's in uh, new modes of expression, spoken word. I mean, so there's some amazing like punk rock groups in the Middle East that are really challenging a lot of normative issues. There's a Me Too movement that's, you know, just incredible across the region. Um, so some of this is questioning a lot of social conservative values and, and religion being a part of that. So I don't think, you know, the protests have ever changed. The Arab Spring was an awakening, and I don't think you can ever put the genie back in the bottle that way. But certainly in terms of, you know, are we going to see toppling of governments? I think we've, we, we probably are not going to see that happen in the same way in the past, partly because the regimes have gotten smarter. They've been buying arms at record pace, uh, mostly Americans that have been supplying it, certainly globally as well. And so it's become more and more difficult for the average citizen to take that personal risk. I think that that's not to say that they're happy. They're, they're generally frustrated with uh, the continuation of corruption and so many things that are, that are happening in their government. But, you know, like I think every country globally coming out of this pandemic, the reckoning is, is going to come because, again, the debt overhang is so incredible Governments in the Middle East uh, spend far less on their people in terms of social services already. It's lower than the uh, world average and, and not comparable to places like Latin America or Asia when it should be. And so you're already starting from a low base of social service provision, and it's going to get tougher and tougher. We don't know, even like the Arab Spring, we never knew what was the moment, right? Uh, what was it that sparked things? We, we kind of attribute it to in the self-immolation of Muhammad uh, ibn Adizi and Khalid Said in, in, in Egypt. I mean, there are these sort of individuals. I'm sorry, I forgot his name in, in, in Syria, but the young boy in Dara who was, who was mutilated. I mean, there are these sort of stories that spark a movement um, and we don't know when those are going to come. I would just say that the discontent is still very real. The conditions are far worse than 2011. And I think, you know, that's just a warning to governments to expect anything and everything. The anecdotal information I've been exposed to is that the Middle East countries haven't really been handling the pandemic particularly well. So is that your impression as well? It's a mixed bag, to be honest with you. You know, some countries have done better than others. And I, I mean, I, I have to say, you know, other than China, where else has, you know, what other countries have really handled it well? I mean, Taiwan. New Zealand, Australia, I mean, those are the kind of ones we could point to, but, mm -hmm. you know, it's really hard for anybody to stand on, on the high ground here and say, oh, we did great and you did so, so, so poorly. Um, but it's a mixed bag throughout the region. I mean, there are, you know, places like Jordan where very, very strict control and measures and they did lockdowns with military in the, in the streets to prevent people from going out at the beginning. In Egypt, I would say, to be honest with you, they, they gave up two weeks, you know, after the first shutdown. Um, and part of it, I think we, we can't in the West be so condescending and judgmental. I mean, the challenge is most people in, in, in the developing world, a country like Egypt, 50% of the population are day laborers. Uh -huh. So they need to go out to work that day. They need yeah. to actually go out physically into the street to get a job, to bring home a paycheck and therefore food. Um, you and I are great examples of professional workers who have been able to rework from home and, and me and you have not seen a, a pay cut. That's not the case for the vast majority of the world. Mm -hmm. so I
we need to have a little empathy for people globally in, in those situations and, and for economies that don't have the digital infrastructure to go remote, that don't have the digital capacity. And certainly, you know, governments don't have in, in many of these countries the resources to, to be able to provide the services the way that our country has, you know, with, with CERB and all these other great mechanisms to ensure that people have a paycheck. So I think we need a little empathy, not to say that, uh, you know, everything they did was that they're not to blame. There's so much mismanagement. Mm-hmm. Um, but I just think that it's really important to have empathy for, for the economic situation that these countries are in. I think empathy is, is the key thing that we need to, to develop these days, because I think that's, that's been the, the deficit we've had in, in North America has been that, you know, the, I think telling people in March of last year that you wear a mask to help other people was perhaps the wrong message, given the selfishness of, of uh, enough of our populations. And maybe if we told people the mask will save you and by accident might help other people, that might, it might have been a lie, but it might have gotten more mask wearing. If we, I really appreciate the time you spent with us today. Vesma, it's always a pleasure talking to you. I'm sorry we haven't had a chance to have our usual teas in in and around events that happen in Ottawa. I'm looking forward to seeing you back in our town sometime down the road. And Canadians can always look for you on TV and radio because the journalists in our country know that when they want expertise on the world, they come to you. And I'm glad that you've had a chance to spend some time with us today. I forgot a rhythm. Well, thanks, Steve. And I'm a great fan of the podcast and, and more importantly of you and Stephanie and all the things that you guys do. Uh, you're a great organization and, and more importantly, you know, you keep all of us who are, you know, in, in the periphery talking about defense and security issues, you know, engaged and uh, that's stuff that you guys do for young people as well. I hope that we have young listeners here who apply to these great programs that you guys put on. I mean, there's so much opportunity and, and it's really to credit to you and to your team. That's very kind. Thank you very much. Be well in this strange time. This week's R&R segment, I have a couple of suggestions, all from TV. Uh, one really old, one newish, and one quite new. The really old one is Space 1999. I, as I was trying to figure out what to talk about today, I found out that Netflix now has Space 1999 on it. It's an old, old, old TV program that I fondly remember for being really having bad special effects. I don't remember anything about it other than that, but I will be watching it soon and I'll reporting back to you on what I think. And, and you might want to try check it out to see how far TV has come. Uh, the second is The Coroner. It's a, a program based in Toronto. So every, every episode you see shots of different pieces of Toronto. It's about a woman who has had a lot of family tragedy and changes her profession from being a, uh, an emergency doctor to being a coroner. And so she, every episode, she's trying to figure out the cause of death of a person and maybe trying to find who's guilty for it. But she's uh, got a much more messed up uh, life than Quincy, the old coroner TV show of my youth. And it's also a much more diverse show than, than most. And so there's really interesting elements from all Canadian life in there. It's a, it's a good uh, watch, I think. And then the third, Resident Alien. It's the silliest show. Alan Tudyk stars as an alien who's come to Earth to destroy the planet, but a ship breaks down. And so he ends up impersonating a doctor in a Colorado town. And he does not fit in very well. And it's delightful. It's just really, really silly. It doesn't make you think very much, but it's, it's a fun watch. And so those are my recommendations of this week. Space 1999, available on Netflix. The Coroner, which is a C... 
BC uh, program, I believe, and then Resident Alien, which is on space and other outlets. So that's my recommendation for this week. Get out and enjoy the sun while it's still here. Uh, spring has come a little early this year, and I think we've needed it more than ever. So be well as we wait for our, our vaccinations. We'd like to hear your questions and your comments. And so please send them to us at Twitter address at CDSNRCDS or email them to CDSN.RCDS at Outlook.com. Thank you.